today on Ag News Daily. The price difference is, is skyrocketing, and that is in place in part because we have to pay a 65% duty, and so it's cheaper for them to buy their pork from Europe. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is another day here on the Ag News Daily podcast, another Wednesday to be exact. My name is Delaney Howell. And I am flying solo today, and I've got to apologize, folks. I am fighting a cold. So, little, uh, I made a joke about this earlier, but I feel like I sound like I smoke a pack of cigarettes a day. So, uh, voice is a little rough today, but please stick with me because there is a lot of news to talk about on this Wednesday afternoon. A lot of news on the trade front in particular. We've got to kick it off here with the news of the U.S.-Japanese trade deal. It is official that an initial trade agreement has been reached, and the first stage of this deal will focus primarily on agricultural products as well as the manufacturing and digital products. It will open up markets, about $7 billion of U.S. products, and the Trump administration and the Japanese administration have both concluded that there will also be other commitments for about $40 billion worth of digital trade coming later on. But this initial first round of accords will open up, of course, as I mentioned, their agricultural products, primarily reducing tariffs on products such as beef and pork, and eliminate tariffs on goods such as almonds, blueberries, and broccoli. So they said, the Trump administration said they are taking significant steps working toward a fair and reciprocal trade agreement, and it seems that the first piece of the puzzle has been completed. The thing we do not know yet, however, is now that they have this initial trade deal done, we don't know yet when and how that will be put into effect. I believe Congress will probably have to vote on it to some extent, as we've seen with USMCA, but we at least have some groundwork set, some paperwork set, it sounds like, and a good first step in reaching a final trade deal. So once the agreement is implemented, over 90% of U.S. food and agricultural products imported into Japan will either be duty-free or receive preferential tariff access. So a an exciting piece of news there for agriculture. Also on the trade front this week is the U.S. and India trade negotiations. They are aiming to quickly move towards some form of a trade agreement. President Trump said after a meeting in New York with the Indian Prime Minister. We've seen the U.S. working with India for quite some time now, and it sounds like They are also going to potentially take on an abbreviated trade pact, as they are with Japan, and have a larger deal down the road. So not sure what that initial trade deal would look like, but it sounds like they're really pushing to have agriculture be kind of an initial part of that deal. And in the other other trade news for today, sounds like last week's preliminary trade conversations with Chinese officials were positive, productive talks, according to Deputy Ag Secretary Steve Sensky. He spoke at the Kansas City Ag Outlook Forum and had lots of comments to mention about Chinese buying and said 
that he's been pleased to see China has been stepping back into the market, purchasing some more soy, more sorghum, of course, some more pork products. And it sounds like the Trump administration is hopeful that China will continue to step in and make some of those big protein purchases. Trump came out today and said that China will be making large purchases of U.S. red meats. However, it seems like traders are a little hesitant and are more so eager to wait and see that that buying actually comes through before the market really gives that news the reaction that maybe it deserves. But since we're talking about things on the beef front, or the meat front, I should say, there's been some interesting hashtags going on right now on Twitter for our Twitter followers or Twitter users. And that hashtag that you may have seen is hashtag fair cattle markets. It has been a hashtag that has been largely trending, created by cow-calf producers and independent cattle feeders who have been turning to the Trump administration looking for some help to even out profits in the beef industry with this social media campaign that really has hit the limelight this week. It's so far garnered thousands of tweets, and a lot of them have been tagging President Trump himself as well as Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue. And the the message is, is basically that cattle folks, ranchers are struggling to make ends meet, to meet some of those break-even prices, while the meat packers, those large folks, are hauling in a majority of the profits. And so many of the Twitter hashtags are also making some messages very clear to the big four beef packers, such as Tyson, JBS, Cargill, and National Beef, and they're asking for more transparency in the meat market and for bringing back the cool labeling, otherwise known as the country of origin labeling for beef. And it seems that uh, we know the USDA is already kind of looking into some of this, as is after the August 9th fire happened at the Tyson's food processing plant. But it seems like a lot of folks are saying, this is not fair. We have seen producers losing about 200 head on average, while meatpacker margins have been $400 plus. I think last week I read they were somewhere in the 450 to 460 range. And producers' share of beef retail prices is currently around 38.5%. So we're also uh, seeing this week the NCBA president, National Cattlemen's Beef Association president, was meeting with and testifying in front of the U.S. Senate Agriculture Committee during the hearing called Perspectives on the Livestock and Poultry Sectors. So I know that has been also prevalent, at least on my Twitter feed. And so it seems like they are trying to sort some of that out. But again, that hashtag, if you'd like to look it up and see what some of the folks are saying firsthand for themselves, it was again, hashtag fair cattle markets. So... Looking back over, though, into the trade front, should have mentioned this earlier when I was doing all of the trade news, but Reuters is reporting today that Taiwan has committed to about $2.2 billion worth of soybean purchases, specifically from Illinois soybean corn and corn products over the next two years, according to their governor on Tuesday. 
They said they've been having some independent trade talks between the Illinois Corn Marketing Board and the Taiwan Feed Association, and they've signed some agreements to see both corn, corn-based products, and some soybeans head out the door here over the next two years. So that's a great news there for some Illinois soybean producers. Looking through the rest of the news for today, I think that about sums it up. So, of course, we've got to talk about the commodity markets today. Did they get a bounce from that Japanese trade deal, or did they not? It seems like the markets have not yet reacted to that news. Maybe they will tomorrow, or as we start to see more of those details trickle out. Let's start here with the December corn contract finished down just a half a cent today at 3.74 and a quarter. The March up a quarter of a cent to end at 3.85 and three quarters. In the soybean pits, the November contract cut five and a quarter cent to end at 8.89 even, while the January lost four and three quarters cents to close at 9.03 even. In the wheat pits, the December contract lost five cents to end at 4.76 and three quarters. The March down five and a quarter to close at 4.83 and a quarter. Looking over into the livestock pits, lots of green across the screen. The October live cattle contract put on 87 and a half cents to close at 103 even. The December up a dollar 07 to end at 108.50. In the feeder cattle pits, the September contract closed 32 and a half cents higher to end at 141.57 and a half. The October added 80 cents to close at 142.45. In the lean hog pits, the October contract not quite reaching limit up today to close $2.57.5 higher to end at $64.57.5. The December put on $2.30 to close at $71.40. And rounding out our markets with the Class 3 dairy futures, the September contract was unchanged to end at $18.26. October losing a penny to close at $18.09. And the November contract closed six cents higher to close at 18.08. Now, for today's interview, we are going to continue talking about African swine fever, looking at the economic impacts of it with Dr. Dermot Hayes of Iowa State University. Well, folks, today we're joined by Dr. Dermot Hayes from Iowa State University. He's a professor of economics up there, and we are going to crunch some of the numbers behind African swine fever. Dr. Hayes, thanks for taking the time to chat with us today. Sure, I'm happy to. Now, to, to kick us off, we've talked about African swine fever quite a bit over the past year, but it is having profound economic impacts. And tell us a little bit about the, the work that you've done looking what those impacts are or, or might be. So, um, yeah, we have looked at the um, the data in China in particular on what happened to the size of the Chinese breeding herd and to Chinese pork production as a result of African swine fever and read many other consultants' reports. And it would appear that China has lost 40 to 50% of its pork production capacity. Um, it, at first, it was there was no scarcity of pork because they were killing their breeding herd. But now that the breeding herd has been um, decimated, uh, the price of pigs and pork in China has skyrocketed. Um, the pig prices now are more than three times the U.S. level. And uh, 
uh, piglet prices are even four to five times the U.S. level. Uh, that has created um, a budget crisis for consumers there. 60% of the meat they eat is pork, and the, when the price of pork triples, uh, it adds to their consumer price index and it adds to concerns about food security. Um, it has created an opportunity for U.S. or Europe or Brazil to export more beef, pork, and chicken into China to compensate for the, the scarcity of pork. Um, the European pork producers are at an advantage there because they're not paying the, uh, the, the duties, the 65% duties that came from the trade war. And so it will be interesting to see if uh, China removes the duties on U.S. pork to allow its consumers to access in a, or cheaper pork from the U.S. Because right now European pork prices are about 40 to 50 percent higher than ours because they're so busy exporting to China. Um, but as you may know, the, the Chinese government announced its intention to remove some of the duties on U.S. pork, um, but I don't know if that's happened yet or not. It, it hasn't yet happened, but we are uh, hopeful that it will. Dr. Hayes, when you look at the price that for domestic pork, you mentioned it has skyrocketed really since the beginning of this outbreak here. When you look at the price of that domestic pork compared then to the U.S. pork that, you know, we are still seeing some get sent over to China, where are those price levels at? Are we seeing that the price of U.S. pork, even with a tariff, is comparable to the domestic pork prices or less comparable? There, uh, last time I checked, which was about a week ago, the price of live hogs in China was $1.65 per pound. We're at 50, 50 cents a pound. So the price, the price difference is, is skyrocketing, and that is in place in part because we have to pay a 65% duty, and so it's cheaper for them to buy their pork from Europe, but also because a lot of our producers uh, use ractopamine, and that's prohibited in China. If it wasn't for the duties, I think uh, we would see a huge market in China, as have the Europeans, and that uh, we would probably voluntarily stop using ractopamine in many of our production uh, systems. Absolutely, because the financial return could be there at that point. Now, Dr. Hayes, one of the things that we've talked about is the massive stockpiles of frozen pork that China has, and they have recently auctioned some off in advance of their October 1st National Day holiday. Is is the frozen pork comparable? I mean, do consumers choose it as often as they would choose fresh pork in China? Do you know? No, they, it's, it has to be discounted to move. Uh, I think the discount mm. is about 30%. So their, their first priority would be what they call warm pork. That's pork that, that was just slaughtered last night. And then they would shift to chilled pork, which could come from the U.S. if if we could get their customs officials to move the product quickly through customs. And lastly, they have uh, frozen pork, which they really the consumers don't want. The best use for frozen pork would be to use it for proce processed uh, products like sausages. Gotcha. Okay, a little lower quality there, maybe a little more uh, inferior. Uh, Dr. Hayes, when you look then at the spread, we've seen outbreaks now reported in South Korea, the Philippines, a, a lot of other uh, Southeastern Asia countries, as well as, of course, it is somewhat across the countries of Europe. What do you see or foresee as the, the global economic impact of African swine fever? So this is a shock to the world protein system, but the system is huge because it involves dairy products, beef, eggs, uh, poultry. And so what will happen is that the price of pork will rise all over the world and consumers everywhere will be incentivized to switch away from pork and towards uh, 
for uh, protein substitutes like eggs or, or beef or chicken. So the, the system can handle it. We're not going to have a, uh, any scarcity as long as we let prices adjust. And, and so far, that's what's happening. And so right now, the, the consumers in, right now, consumers in Brazil are getting the incentive to eat less pork and more beans and rice or more poultry because uh, the price of pork has gone up there. Just the one thing that concerns me is the outbreak in South Korea. As you know, the North Korea has the disease, but there's a demilitarized zone between North Korea and South Korea. So it's it's not likely that the pork crossed over from North Korea. And so then it must have come in by ocean. And that's a, a big concern because Korea, South Korea is an advanced country with good scientific expertise and good biosecurity. And for uh, essentially an island country to get the disease, probably from China, means that it's the U.S. could be exposed to getting the same disease from China if we make the same mistake that the Koreans did. Now, we don't know what mistake they made, but we, and until we know that, we don't know uh, if we're exposed to the disease here. And if we do get the disease, even China will not buy our pork. Wow. So it would have devastating consequences if African swine fever came to the U.S. Is that something you've, you've run some models on, what the domestic, yes, U.S. Yeah. domestic industry might look like? Yes, we did. We, we asked a slightly different question. We asked what would happen if we lost our export markets for pork. And we export about 20%, 27% of what we produce. And you have to drop farm level prices by about 45% to get American consumers to eat that pork rather than uh, export it. Oh, wow. So 40, 45%. So now we're talking 30 cents a pound hogs. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's scary. And, and it's also scary that we don't know how the Koreans, what mistake the Koreans made for them to outbreak, to, to have a, several outbreaks of the disease. Uh, my hunch is it probably came in from China as some kind of pig feed or um, soybean meal or, or something that came from China to Korea. And we need to be watching out to not import those products from China. Absolutely. Dr. Hayes, looking at some of the other work that you've been uh, following right now, looking at the Iowa State Extension website, I see you've been focusing really a lot on just the economic impacts of this U.S.-Chinese trade war and what that's really having on the global front. Is there anything new to report there? Just that I learned this morning that the reason that China got the disease in the first place was because of the trade war. So they didn't have access to uh, inexpensive U.S. pork, so they bought pork from Russia. And uh, Russia had the disease, and so that's how the disease entered China. Wow. Interesting. Oh. Yeah, fascinating. So we're still, we're still very much in the process of learning how this disease is spreading country to country. Uh, but the feed ingredients angle makes a lot of sense. When you think about what would happen, I'm coming back to the domestic industry. We're seeing a, a 45% drop in prices. What would that do to most producers? Are, do, do you know uh, roughly where we're falling as far as profitability is concerned right now at current prices? Yeah, we're modestly profitable at current prices, and looking forward, using the futures market, we should have a decent year um, because the futures prices are high because there's an expectation that China will eventually buy our pork and remove those retaliatory duties. If, but if we get the disease, then we've got to downsize our industry by about 27%, which means that some producers are going to have to go to business. And the only way to do that in the U.S. is to have low market prices so that people could... Uh, and, and of concern to me is that it's kind of well known now, based on research from uh, Kansas State, that soybean meal uh, and 
uh, pet food carry the disease across the ocean. They, there's enough. The disease is able to last in those products. The virus is able to last in those products to to survive an ocean crossing. Uh, so that's that's very concerning because we're importing soybean meal and pet food from China right now. Yeah, I think I read something that said the virus could live within that feed for up to 30 days. Yep, and it's it's amazing to me that we continue to import those products. I, I guess they're doing a risk assessment and those things take time. But common sense would suggest uh, that we halt the importation until we know more. Well, uh, common sense and the government maybe don't always go hand in hand, but uh, <laughs> Dr. Dermot Hayes... Uh, maybe your listeners. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe your listeners are government employers. <laughs> oh, well, maybe we shouldn't say that too loudly, but uh, Dr. Dermot Hayes, Well, they're the ones you. with common sense. Yes, absolutely, that they are. Thank you uh, so much for filling us in on this. It's been very fascinating. Great. Great talking to you guys. Thanks for calling. All right. Well, a big thank you again to Dr. Dermot Hayes. I encourage you to check out some of his work if you are interested in learning more. Or if you want to learn more with Ag News Daily, feel free to check out our website, globalagnetwork.com slash agnewsdaily. Or catch up with us on social media at Ag News Daily on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. With that, folks, I'm going to let you go. We'll see you back here tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs>